Star Wars at the Movies. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars at the Movies. An international oral history of cinematic experiences from a galaxy far, far away. I've seen Star Wars about a dozen times. I've seen Star Wars 17 times. Star Wars? Uh, 22 times. 30 times. 40 times, and it was great each time. 45. About 57 times. 69. You can never get too much of Star Wars. I. I've seen the first Star Wars 153 times. All together, we have seen Star Wars 324 times. We've been here for six days and it's great! Hello there. Welcome to episode 22 of Star Wars at the Movies. For this round, I'm happy to be joined by writer, researcher, and all-around Star Wars enthusiast Amy Rickow. Amy's been a frequent contributor to StarWars.com and Star Wars Insider, and she's authored or co-authored several great books, with a massive one due out early next year with Star Wars Timelines. And beyond all of that, she's the creator of the incredible 365 Star Wars Women Project, documenting the wide-ranging stories of the women who have helped bring Star Wars to life on screen, on the page, canvas, airwaves, the web, in video games, virtual reality, you name the medium. Uh, in addition to spotlighting over 400 female characters from that galaxy far, far away. What made our conversation all the more fun was the similar path that she and I happen to follow in terms of our education and interest in film history and preservation. We're fellow UCSB gauchos and film studies program alumni, and both found our way to working in film archives for a good spell in our professional lives. Add in the lifelong Star Wars obsession, and we are definitely cut from the same cloth. Or celluloid film stock, maybe. Amy happened to spend her youth in Montana and was first introduced to the Star Wars trilogy on the big screen while growing up in the state's largest city of Billings, which had a healthy and expanding selection of movie theaters in the 70s and early 80s. The original Star Wars would roll into town for the very first time on June 15, 1977 for a six-month run at the Rimrock Fourplex. The first quadplex built in the state of Montana opened its doors in October of 1975, just a month after the Rimrock shopping mall that contained it. At the time, the Rimrock Mall was reportedly the largest shopping complex between Minneapolis and the West Coast, so a big modern mall called for a big modern multi-screen movie theater that could seat just under a thousand patrons in all. Theater Operators Incorporated, or TOI, owned and operated the Rimrock, whose lobby and its brown and beige short shag carpet would serve as the hub for four auditoriums, each of a different color scheme. Beige, blue, orange, and purple. Multi-hued vinyl plastic wall coverings rendered a rainbow-like look for the concession stand. All of this sounds very 1975, and no doubt got some of that Star Wars wear and tear throughout those 27 weeks in 1977. Star Wars would return to the Rimrock 4 for its re-release in 1978, along with the Crossroads Twin on the other side of town and the fast-growing community of Billings Heights. 
Where the Rimrock Mall could boast its overall size on the map, the Crossroads Mall originated in 1976 with the Crossroads Food Store, which was the biggest grocery store in Montana when it opened. The floor plan was expansive enough to display cars alongside produce, with plenty of shopping cart space to cruise around. Another one of TOI's local venues, the Crossroads Twin, was part of the mall's early extensions in October of 1977, and the only indoor theater in the vicinity. 1979 would see another Star Wars reissue and an encore at the Crossroads, as well as the franchise debut in a new spot back at the Rimrock Mall. TOI opened the World West Theaters in June of 79 as a standalone sister venue adjacent to the mall and shared signage with the Rimrock 4, letting shoppers know which flick was playing where. The World West would play host to the Star Wars universe for the next few years, with The Empire Strikes Back making its Montana entrance on June 18, 1980, for a first run of 15 weeks. Star Wars would get its 1981 and 82 re-releases there too. Empire would have its 1981 rerun at the then Cine 4, an establishment opened 10 years prior in 1971 as the Cine 3, claiming to have been the first triple theater complex in the Northwest. The saga's movie-going torch would then pass on to the historic Babcock Theater in downtown Billings with Empire's 1982 re-release. The stage was set for the movie palace to bring in droves of fans for Return of the Jedi's premiere on May 25, 1983. It began with the story of a boy, a girl, and a universe. It became an epic battle between the forces of good and evil. Return to a galaxy far away. The saga lives on. Return of the Jedi. Rated PG. Starts Wednesday, May 25th at a theater in your galaxy. The next day on May 26th, the Billings Gazette ran a front page story that began with, quote, Billings Star Wars junkies skipped work, cut classes, and took long lunch hours Wednesday to stand in line for Return of the Jedi tickets at $4.50 each. No one was disappointed and ticket takers said they didn't hear a single complaint about the price. More on that in a minute. Mothers lugged children in, businessmen in three-piece suits queued up for the popcorn. Local actors came in their favorite t-shirts, and some couples made a date of it with sack lunches and soda pop. By 9.30 a.m., lines began winding in front of the Babcock Theater for the 1 p.m. show. Lanny Wagner, city manager for Theater Operators Incorporated, had a staff of eight on hand to sell tickets and concessions. Business was so good that Wagner stepped up to the booth and helped. And before the opening, he installed a second snack bar upstairs and an extra downstairs ticket booth. The article goes on to note that fans, quote, greeted the credits at the 1 p.m. show with whistles and applause. They clapped and cheered at the rescue of R2-D2 and C-3PO, and they hissed the evil emperor as he tried to lure Luke Skywalker to the dark side, where fear and hate rule. It goes on, quote, Phone lines to the Babcock were jammed, and ticket takers said they had never seen a reaction like this to a show, including reaction to other studio blockbusters Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Superman, E.T., The Godfather, and The Exorcist. As afternoon lines pushed down 2nd Avenue past Bert and Ernie's restaurant, one shopper remarked, Where did all these people come from? How can they all be here? <laughs> and I can only imagine that shopper being a little granny muppet, and I hope you do too. Anyway, Jedi's $4.50 ticket price was more than any other Billings Theater had ever charged, and a full dollar up from the standard $3.50 ahead that 20th Century Fox had apparently prescribed for the movie's first four weeks. 
Wagner was quoted, If crowds continue like this, she'll stay at the Babcock. She belongs on a big screen. And stay she did for 15 weeks before moving along to several of the suburban multiplexes I'd mentioned earlier. Through many shutdowns and rebirths by fire or competing exhibition industry trends, the Babcock and its 1907 vintage is the only one of them still operational, and not surprisingly is a place my guest Amy has fond memories of. With that, let's head out to Big Sky Country and hit the feature presentation. And now for our feature presentation. Newport Beach, California. Um, and it was before Newport Beach, California was like fancy. It was when like, you know, more like regular people lived and could afford to live in Newport Beach, California. But my family moved to Montana when I was three. So I really don't remember it there. Um, and so I really spent all of my time until I, uh, went to California to college in uh, Billings, Montana, which if you are familiar with Montana is the, the big city of Montana. Um, I, I'm not going to really recommend going there. I would recommend other places in Montana, but I grew up uh, in in Montana. So it kind of like felt very isolated away. Like I felt like I was, you know, Luke on Tatooine. Like that's like the kind of feeling that Montana gives you, you know, when you're, when you're growing up, or at least in my case. And I was, I mean, like I am like right dead in the center of Gen X and really affiliate myself very strongly with it. And so, you know, Stranger Things is, except for, you know, the upside down, like I didn't have the upside down, luckily, but like, I really, really heavily relate to everything that that show is going, just like getting on your bike and riding around until like, you know, dark and, you know, you're, no one had any idea where you were. Um, and all of the movies that, you know, you think of as being like, you know, the influential movies of the eighties, like of course, Star Wars, but like Indiana Jones, I was huge into E.T. and Goonies and Gremlins and Ghostbusters. And, you know, I also really was, uh, kind of obsessed about a couple of like animated films at the time, like Secret of Nim and Watership Down, which was not at all a children's film, but I saw it as a child. Um, I think that the trauma of Watership Down, like, you know, like, I like it really like it freaked me out so much that I feel like it, it really like it made a lot of impressions upon me. Um, and then I later as an adult read the book and I was just like, oh, my God, like, why would I watch that when I was a kid? Yeah, Secret of Nim had that exact same imprint on me. It's just very scarring. Yet somehow you were still just completely in love with 
with it. Yeah, well, and Poltergeist is like, you know, another example of this. Like, I'm not to this day like a huge horror movie fan. Like, I don't, I, I like them, but I literally just don't ever want to go to a theater to see them a lot of times because I feel like they're just too scary and I'll just hide under a chair or something like that. But like, it's interesting that like a lot of my very strongest, you know, childhood memories are, you know, watching Poltergeist over and over again, even though like, you know, to this day, like, I don't want to, anything to do with clowns or anything to do with anything in that movie because it just scared me so much but uh but I was just a huge huge George Lucas and Steven Spielberg fan I mean I think I had literally like a behind the scenes picture of them like hanging up in my locker like I mean I was just like you know I was that kid you know that <laughs> became very obsessed about their kind of movie making yeah and so what was the movie theater landscape like in Billings Montana were there multiple theaters or was there one that your family would frequent So there was actually quite a few movie theaters in Billings, um, which was great. There was, you know, a couple at the mall. There was one that ended up turning when I was older into like a dollar, you know, a dollar cinema. Uh, So it was pretty easy to see movies. And my family were very big into movies. And my parents were very big into taking me to movies that were perhaps a little bit beyond my age when I was a kid. Like I remember seeing Chariots of Fire when it came out, like, and I didn't, you know, couldn't really appreciate it for what it was because I was like on the younger side, but they really uh, felt, they really loved movies and really kind of passed that along to me. Um, and at the time, Billings had a movie theater called the Babcock Theater, which was an old movie palace that had a balcony and just felt like super, super fancy to go to. Like it wasn't any more expensive. Um, than going there. But I have, you know, a a lot of my memories, like I remember going to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and sitting in the front row of the balcony. And like during one of the jump scares, like some of my popcorn like flew over the balcony. (laughs) And I just remember a whole bunch of, I remember very specifically seeing a lot of movies there because it was such a gorgeous place to see a film and a place that, you know, it's hard to find a place to see a film like that now. Um, So I'm really, really glad that I, I had that experience. Yeah. And so how and where were you first introduced to Star Wars and what's your earliest movie going memory with that franchise? So it's funny, I asked, uh, my father passed away um, or a little over uh, 10 years ago, but I asked my mom a couple years ago after I had kind of like really, you know, re-energized my Star Wars fandom with all the writing I've been doing. I said, you know, like, how did I first see Star Wars? Like, because I have a very vague memory of seeing the Death Star destroy Alderaan (laughs) in the theater when I was four, but like, that's all I remember about it, which is very funny, like that that is like my first Star Wars memory. Um, And she said that my dad saw it on um, like his own or with friends or something like that. And he felt extremely strongly that my mom and my sister and I like had to see it immediately and that we would love it. Um, And he was right. Like we did. And like we got all the action figures as soon as they came out for like the following Christmas. Um, And so we I saw, you know, the original trilogy with my family, you know, in the theaters kind of right away, which was a great way to see it just because it was then fun years later being able to see The Force Awakens with my mom. Like I got to take her to the movie, you know, movies. And so. You know, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, Star Wars is the generational love. And for me, it really, really has been because my father, more than anyone, really encouraged me to 
see a lot of movies to learn about the behind the scenes thing. Like I think he kind of wishes he would have been, you know, a v, you know, an ILMer. And so it really that was kind of in a, you know, I grew up in a household that was very very like positive about me obsessing about Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, so beyond the traumatizing Death Star destruction of Alderaan, were there any other scenes or, or moments that began to have a lasting impact on subsequent viewings of the original or the later movies? Yeah, well, I mean, my, you know, I had to, I had, you know, that the weird, you know, A New Hope, you know, kind of like flash image of destruction. I was scared to death of Yoda and Dagobah when I saw The Empire Strikes Back for the first time. And I was convinced that Yoda was going to hurt Luke. And to the point where my dad, like, pretty much had to tell me to shut up in the theater. He was just like, it's going to be fine. Um, but I was like, I don't know, you know, like, he seems kind of creepy sometimes. I'm not afraid. You will be. You will be. Uh, And so I was really kind of like, you know, freaked out by that. But it was when I was 10 and I saw Return of the Jedi. um, And it really, really was the Jabba the Hutt, you know, that whole sequence of Jabba the Hutt and his palace and the skiff and that whole scene and all of the creatures that really just completely sealed the deal that I would be a Star Wars fan. Um, I also really love the Ewoks and, you know, all of that, like, battle, but I really just became completely obsessed with how the heck they did all of that Jabba the Hutt stuff and who all of those creatures were. And really, like, you know, so much of my interest of Star Wars wasn't just that I really loved the world and I, you know, thought of it as a great escape as a kid, kind of, you know, like, daydream about, like, being in that world, but I really, really wanted to know how they did all this cool stuff. Yeah. And do you remember where you saw Empire and Jedi? You know, what's funny is that I know where I saw The Empire Strikes Back, but I don't remember exactly. I might have seen Return of the Jedi in the big in the Babcock Theater. But like, I think I actually just saw them in like the like the regular mall movie theaters. I don't have like very specific like theater impressions for them. um, But I just know that I especially with Return of the Jedi, I just went back over and over and over again to the point where I think I drove my parents a little bit, you know, insane. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you weren't alone there. Just among your peers growing up there, was Star Wars as big of a deal as it seemed to have been just about everywhere else? What was the Star Wars vibe like in Billings in the 80s? Well, you know, I felt like, you know, I remember having like one or two girlfriends who also liked Star Wars. But for the most part, I felt like it was kind of like our secret that we liked Star Wars. And it wasn't something that like... You know, I feel like, you know, most of my Star Wars fandom has been like me enjoying it on my own or with like close family and friends and not as much of a community love of Star Wars that I have kind of enjoyed in the last five to 10 years. Um, And so I think that, you know, a lot of people were excited about it, but certainly after Return of the Jedi and then when you enter like, you know, what? you know, what my generation calls the dark times, which really did feel pretty dark um, at the time for like the next 10 years. I felt like it was kind of something that like, you know, not something that I needed to be ashamed of, but something that was kind of like something I did on my own and, you know, didn't talk about in public necessarily. (laughs) Right. So I know you have a much broader interest in cinema and film history and that that was really rooted early on from your parents. How did that develop further through your education and eventual work in film preservation? Yeah, so my dad really, he recorded a ton of old movies on VHS. 
And um, so he introduced me to Alfred Hitchcock and Billy Wilder and Orson Welles and MGM musicals very, very early on. And there are certain films of those directors that I have seen just like so many times. It's kind of, you know, ridiculous where I could kind of, you know, I could just say along the whole script with them. Um, and I think that between my dad and my mom loving those films and then learning about Star Wars and learning about what inspired George Lucas, because he was so inspired by so many films from so many creators around the world, I sought out those films. I'm like, oh, well, you were, you know, like, well, what, what is this film? What, like, where can I see it? And then you get a little bit of like a, you know, a little mini degree in film history if you watch all of the films that George Lucas talks about having, you know, inspired Star Wars. And so I went to college at UC Santa Barbara and the re... I was get, one of the reasons I chose it is because it's on a beach um, and it's very beautiful there. But the main reason that I chose it is because they have a film studies program that is much more focused on film history and film analysis and kind of treats film, you know, it's like it's like getting an English major, but for film rather than books. Um, it's much more focused on that than film production. And that's what I was really, really interested in. Um, for a while, I thought I was going to become a film academic, but then I really just became interested after I graduated in film preservation, which led me to go to the George Eastman House, which at the time only had a one year kind of a certificate program where you could get certified in uh, film preservation. Uh, George Eastman House is one of the largest film archives in the world and like a huge leader in film preservation. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's in Rochester, New York. And that really kind of then, you know, led to me working in film preservation for several years. Yeah. Star Wars had a huge effect on that because I really like was so taken by the films that George Lucas kind of inspired me to see early on. I kind of wonder if my love of film would have been as strong without it. Yeah, and the Lucasfilm archives have always been this mythical realm that I've been fascinated to learn more about. And I know you were there for a little while toward the end of the prequel era. It'd be great to hear any highlights you have from your time there in the vault at Skywalker Ranch. Yeah, so what was kind of funny is that, so I went, you know, I went to George Eastman House. I moved back to L.A., um, where I was living before. I spent some time at the UCLA Film and Television Archives, and then I went to YCM Laboratories, which is like a boutique film restoration and preservation lab. And YCM had just kind of, they had finished up, they did a lot of the restoration work for the special editions um, of Star Wars. Uh, and I was, so I wasn't there when they did that, but it was the same, you know, laboratory. And so I kind of got to see, you know, some of the end, you know, products of that as they were kind of putting everything away. And I decided to move up to the Bay Area for some personal reasons. And I happened to know the per, uh, a woman who at the time was running the archives at uh, Industrial Light and Magic. And she was, she thought she might have a job for me at the ILM archives, but then that didn't work out. But she's like, there is a temporary opening happening at the Lucasfilm archives. Like, you know, are you interested? And you're like, ha ha ha, yes. You know, like, yes, I am. Uh, and so I did work there. It was, uh, what was it? It was like 2004, 2005, like the end of 2004, beginning of 2005. And I was there and, you know, Skywalker Ranch is a very, very beautiful place. What's funny about my experience at Skywalker Ranch is that it can also, in my opinion, be a very isolating place if you're in the archive 
and you're in this huge building filled with like thousands and thousands of film cans and there's only one person there and they're not always even there. <laughs> and so like it really is kind of you alone in the film archive. Um, and so I didn't get to meet as many people because um, I'm a, I am a huge introvert anyways. And so like, it, you know, I'm not like the person who's going to go out in the big house, you know, like and be like, hey, like, you know, everyone meet me and talk to me. Uh, and so it was it was interesting being, you know, in this beautiful, you know, area, but kind of it was it was a bit of an isolating experience just because I was kind of geographically separated from people unless I went to the big house for for lunch um, or just to walk around because, I mean, it really is like the best place, you know, you can possibly walk around, you know, for a break during during your day. But I did a lot of cataloging when I was there. Um, I remember like looking and doing kind of like a brief work, like cataloging some of the deleted scenes that ended up years later popping up in the, the Blu-ray release for the original trilogy. And so it was fun to kind of get an early, you know, peek there. One of the funniest things that happened while I was there is my boss was not in the office. I think he was out of town and I picked up the phone and it was someone from London who needed an audio element of something. Um, and so I kind of like went around and I figured out where it was and I got it and got on the pallet and shipped it to London. And then I ended up getting um, my, my one and only, you know, Star Wars credit where you see like the starry sky with, you know, your name in blue on, um, Oh, what is it called? It was the um, little like music video montage that came with the soundtrack to Revenge of the Sith. I like, I think you can see it on YouTube, but I don't think it's ever been officially like kind of re-released. But, um, you know, the Emperor Ian McDermott is there to like, you know, like basically like just take you through some Star Wars music videos. It was there above the verdant moon of Endor that the Rebel Alliance finally proved victorious over the forces of evil. It was there that Anakin Skywalker cast off the shackles of enslavement to his emperor and found redemption through love for his son. It was a time of celebration when peace and justice returned to the galaxy. May the force be with you, always. And I got like a special thanks credit for like literally like doing the most basic of basic things, but it was great <laughs> you know? because I was like, oh, look, like, like, look at that, my name in blue. Like I've done it, I've made it, you know, like, you know, can check that off your, you know, bucket list of, you know, Star Wars, you know, geek experiences. But I mean, it was a great experience and everyone who I did meet there was very, very lovely. It was during, the end of post-production of Revenge of the Sith. Um, and it was right before the Presidio building was opening. Uh, and so I was able to actually go to the Presidio building, their headquarters in Lucasfilm now uh, in 2019. And it was so weird to be there because the last time, you know, I had kind of done an official Lucasfilm thing was right before that building, you know, was opening. And you know, when I left, the the archives um i ended up moving to colorado and i really kind of thought you know well that was it that was my star wars experience like and now now i'm done <laughs> you know like it never occurred to me that like any i would never kind of touch or be a part of any other kind of official 
Star Wars thing, partially because it seemed like Star Wars was kind of winding down again as it, you know, it seemed like it was after the original trilogy. But, um, you know, Star Wars always ends up kind of coming back when you least expect it. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It has that kind of cyclical recurring nature to it for sure. And on that note, how would you say Star Wars has maintained an influence on your life and career? And what part did those original movie-going experiences play in that? You know, I think that what draws me to Star Wars is just the pure, like, escapism of it. Um, Like, and it, you know, with the original trilogy, certainly, like, I think that there are certain films or certain, you know, you could be books or songs. For me, it's mostly films that are just really comforting. And you kind of turn to them in moments of stress or moments of unsureness or, you know, any, you know, like, if you watch those films, like, it just makes you feel better and it can inspire you. And um, I think that with, you know, with Star Wars... I also like have a lot of interest in how films are are made and following the history of Star Wars films. You really follow a lot of the technological breakthroughs, you know, with with digital cinema and all of that. Um, and so I really just find it to be kind of, you know, this inspiring thing that's kind of always in the background that I'm always excited about. And it's always been fun to, you know, find someone, you know, at Target who's wearing a Star Wars shirt and you kind of look at each other like because you're both wearing a Star Wars shirt and you kind of like, you know, nod at each other or like someone tells you, you know, like, oh, like, you know, I have a BB-8 credit card, like BB-8's on my credit card. And like, it's hilarious, like how many conversations kind of are generated by one Star Wars fan finding another in the world and just kind of connecting, you know, in that way. And so that I think that, you know, just the I think that the community of Star Wars fans now is one of my biggest draws to staying kind of engaged with this universe because I just find it to be a delightful kind of, you know, second family. Absolutely. And speaking of that sense of engagement and inspiration, I'd love to hear the origin and development of the 365 Star Wars Women Project and its evolution beyond that, because I know it expanded quite a bit beyond that original 365. How did it come about? And are there any interviews or interactions that you were the most fond or proud of? Yeah, so I, uh, you know, shortly after, you know, when the sequel trilogy first came out, I was kind of, you know, at a point in my life where I was wanting to do something creative. Like I had, I wanted to stay home with my my kids. Um, and I did, I kind of took myself out of the workforce and was lucky enough to be able to financially to do that. Um, but I was getting at the point where I was really needing a creative outlet and I wanted to get back into writing. Uh, And so I started writing about Star Wars and I was really looking for something that would force me to write more often than I was and looking for some sort of creating something that could be mine, something that I could kind of like feel like I created this, I did this, you know, like it might be important, (laughs) maybe not, but like it would be important to me. Uh, And so for 2018, every day I had a little mini post about a Star Wars character from any from legends, canon, you know, comics, video games, books, you know, TV, all of that. And then I also decided to highlight women that were working behind the scenes. And it was funny because the for me, the most important part of that project was interviewing women who worked behind the scenes in Star Wars, because you don't you hear about them much more now. For many, many years, you you didn't hear so much about the women working behind the scenes of Star Wars, like the light and magic documentary that just came out in Disney Plus. They interviewed Rose um, Dugnan, who, um, or Dignan, I'm not sure how you say her name, sorry, uh, even though I've talked to her. But um, 
you, you don't hear her story. You know, you hadn't heard her. A lot of people have not heard her story, didn't know who she was. I knew who she was, and she was probably one of my favorite interviews with 365 Star Wars women because, to me, she was, like, this hero who kind of started off as, like, borderline a secretary, you know, in A New Hope. And then in your Return of the Jedi, she was kind of really running things, for, like, with the creature shop and making sure that everything was being all the deadlines were being met and everything, you know, all the trains were running on time. And so she was someone who was really important to me. And I'm very, very happy that a lot of women like her are kind of getting more attention. Um, and I'm certainly glad that, you know, now there are more women who are writing Star Wars. There are women who are directing Star Wars, you know, because like for a while it just seemed pretty embarrassing that like there weren't you know, there weren't any women directors. Like there were certain, you would, when you start categorizing all the women who are, you know, working behind the scenes, there was like one woman who had composed a couple episodes of the Ewok series, you know, but now we have, you know, with the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, we have like something that is, you know, more, much more recent and kind of a larger, you know, project. And it's nice to kind of see the areas of Star Wars filmmaking that, you know, haven't really had that many women contributing to it there is just so much more star wars content now that those you know holes are kind of being starting to get to get filled which is really really great and you know star wars fans were extremely supportive of me and the 365 star wars women project i absolutely credit it with me being asked to write you know some of the nonfiction books for dk that i have and i really think that uh you know i still look at it on it as like you know pretty much best thing I've done um, in Star Wars, uh, even though it's like a fan made kind of a thing. I really just, you know, I, I look back on that and I ended up like, I kind of ended up continuing it for a while, but then I killed it at 600 because I was like, you know, come on, like this needs to, you know, we just need to end and move on. Everyone, you know, is sick of all these posts. And so I, uh, Leslie Headland, who's um, doing The Acolyte, which is a series that I am very excited about. She was number 600 and I decided just to kind of stop it there. Although sometimes when I like, I'm watching Star Wars things, I'm like, oh, that would be such a good post, you know, like, or that would be such a good interview. It was a good experience and it forced me to, you know, be more, it certainly forced me to be more consistent. Yeah, it's truly amazing just how consistent and steady you were with it. Just so impressive and so important. To round things out, is there any current or future work, Star Wars or otherwise, that you'd like to share? Sure. Well, I'm still, I, you know, I, I have written a couple of, contributed to some Star Wars books. Uh, Star Wars I Love You, I Know was my first and will probably always remain one of my favorites just because it was my first and it was such a great, um, it was so fun to kind of look at the relationships of Star Wars. Um, it was fun to contribute to, I wrote the... The Rise of Skywalker, new character pages for the revised character encyclopedia. And earlier this year, Dan Zare and I wrote a book, Star Wars, I Am Your Father, about mother and father and mentor relationships, um, which was really cool. Came out right around Celebration, which was which was fun. Um, I'm very excited about some Star Wars Insider articles that I kind of have on the back burner um, that will be coming out either later this year or next year. Uh, but the big thing is, you know, the Star Wars Timelines book was a completely dream project to be a part of, um, just an amazing set of authors and just a huge undertaking. Uh, and so I am very excited. I'm excited for that to come out. And um, I'm excited about other things that are kind of in the works, but but some of those things haven't been announced yet. And Timelines hasn't come out yet. And so I always like, you know, I feel like everything is everything Star Wars is a secret until I'm told explicitly that it's not. Like that seems to be the best way to go about everything. <laughs> so that's usually what I do. 
Yes, that sounds very familiar and is completely sensible. Well, I just want to say thanks again for your time and for sharing your story here on the podcast. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks for having me. No, this is this is very uh, this is this is very fun. everything stop all the explosives and the special effects excuse me now when i'm saying this thing about all the troops on sector 12 to the south slope what is sector 12 actually what is sector 12 Thanks again to Amy for taking part, and I will say it again, go take a deep dive into the archives of the 365 Star Wars Women Project. You won't be disappointed. You'll find links to that and Amy's other work in the full show notes on this project's website, StarWarsAtTheMovies.com. If you're on Facebook, you can keep up with the page and join the group, or follow on Instagram and Twitter. You can also find me on Twitter at Stephen B. Danley. And huge thanks, as always, to my friend Michael Cote for pulling together information on the life of Star Wars in all of those Billings movie theaters featured. He also sent along some great newspaper ads from the time that you can peruse in the show notes. And finally, thanks to all you Star Wars junkies for listening. Until we can all enjoy our sack lunch and soda pop Jedi sidewalk dates and our favorite t-shirts again, remember, relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun.